0: With Dr. Frank Turek. Is morality more certain than science? Or is science more certain than morality? Is philosophy more certain than science? Or is science more certain than philosophy? You'd probably say, oh, science is far more certain than those two things. Hold on, we'll get to it. Why would God put Adam and Eve in the garden if he knew they would sin? And are we just here for God's glory? Is God some cosmic ego? Those are some of the questions I hope to get to today. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network website, crossexamined.org. That's crossexamined with a D on the end of it.org Question, why is the country locked down? Why are you sitting at home? I submit to you, it's because we know more about the morality of the coronavirus than the science of the coronavirus. Morality is the reason you're sitting home right now. We know it's wrong to allow a virus to indiscriminately kill innocent people when you can when we can prevent it. The problem is, is that we really don't know how to prevent it and we don't really know how dangerous it is. We know it's dangerous to a certain extent. Many people have died. But we don't really have the specifics. In fact, our scientific uncertainty made us assume that the worst case models were true. When this whole, whole thing started, we were at 2.5 million deaths based on the models. Then we said, okay, if we do social distancing, we lock down the country, anywhere between 100,000 and, 100, and 240,000 would die. In fact, Dr. Birx at uh, on March 29th at the White House conference said, at the press conference said, if we do everything perfectly, We might, we might be at the lower end of that range, 100,000 to 240,000. Well, it looks like that we're going to be well under that, thankfully. So why, why weren't the models better? Why didn't they give us better data? Because we didn't have enough data going in. If we knew the science better, the entire nation would probably not be in lockdown. Manhattan might be, but not Montana. Montana. See, we know the morality better we're more certain that it's wrong to allow innocent people to die when you can prevent it than we are about what actually makes innocent people die and how it how it spreads and 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 how dangerous it is because look, look all the assumptions that went into these models the transmission rates we don't we don't really know what they are we they seem the transmission rate seems to be higher than the flu because we don't have any antibodies for the coronavirus, at least when it, this whole thing started. We do now. But we don't really know how, how contagious it is. It's obviously contagious to, a, to a, a relatively high degree. We just don't know how much. And so the models had to, had to guess. We don't know the number who are asymptomatic. Although in recent days, we've discovered, it seems, both from data from California and data from New York, that a lot more people have this than we originally thought maybe by an order of magnitude magnitude of between 50 and 85 in other words 50 times to 85 times more people have this than we think which means what well it means that most of the people who get this have either no symptoms or mild symptoms and that means the death rate of the coronavirus is much less than we think doesn't mean it's not dangerous but it's less than we originally thought. Let me put it that way. And so I, I asked Dr. Dan, who we've had on this program several times, as you know, the medical doctor about this. I said, as one uh, commentator a- a- after he ran the numbers, said the death rate was about 0.75%. 0.75%. He, I asked Dr. Dan, so if the death rate is really point or 0.75% and much less for younger and those without other conditions... We should open everything up and continue to practice social distancing why isolating the vulnerable. He said, exactly. Because the real way to end this, now that we have more data, is to allow healthy people to get it who will turn out to be either asymptomatic or not experience great uh, trouble from this. They will have mild symptoms. And sequester or protect the vulnerable. What happens when you do that? You get what's called herd immunity. The virus actually doesn't, pa- doesn't go anywhere after that because there's no place for it to go or very f- there's fewer people for it to go to. And so the epidemic or the pandemic ceases. That's the way you protect people. In fact, Dr. Dan was saying, if you really want to end this, more people need to get infected who are healthy, who will then develop antibodies. And that will prevent the virus from continuing to grow. And we don't know that number right now. We don't know how many are already immune. We're trying to figure that out. But if this data that has recently come in this week or has come in this week is correct, then that's probably what we ought to do. Now, we didn't know this in retrospect. Why? Because we didn't know the science. We didn't have enough data. We knew the morality better than the science. We don't know the cause of death for many people. They've moved the goalposts this week. They started adding probable coronavirus deaths to the total number. They said, let's just count the probable ones now. So they've actually inflated the number dead by just changing the criteria. Now, again, this isn't to minimize. It's tragic when you have 50,000 people die. I'm not saying that's not tragic. I'm simply saying that we're changing the way we're counting because our science is not very precise. We don't know the number who would have died anyway from other diseases. You see people dying from coronavirus, they're 90-something years old. Well, is it really coronavirus that killed them? Might these people have died anyway? It depends on how it's being reported. Dr. Burke said, we're going to count everybody who has coronavirus as being the cause of death. Despite the fact that somebody who might have had coronavirus also had a heart attack that killed him. we're going to say that's a coronavirus death. Well, if we're imprecise in how we count people and we keep changing the criteria by which we count people, how does that help our scientific understanding? There are many things we don't know. We don't know how how easily it transmits via the air. We don't know the impact of warmer weather. We assume if it's like other coronaviruses, the warmer weather is going to make it much less prevalent. We don't know all these things we're getting better data now and maybe we can make better assessments now but without the data we can't know and so what the president and others decided to do was let's go with the worst case scenario and lock everything down because we're sure for we're more sure of the morality than we are of the science now one other observation about this morality issue ladies and gentlemen do you know that there is nobody out there, no atheist out there, thankfully, and certainly no Christian out there, who is saying, you know what? Let's just let this thing go. Let's just let's just use the Darwinian survival of the fittest morality. Why don't we just let people who are vulnerable get it? They'll die, and that'll be better for the remaining people then. It's a survival of the fittest anyway, right? Now, despite the fact that somebody like Richard Dawkins, who on one hand says there is no right and wrong, there is no good, there is no justice, there is no ultimate good or evil, we just dance to our DNA, despite the fact that he says that as an atheist, he says, to his credit, I don't believe in a Darwinian type morality. I don't believe in the survival of the fittest. So on one hand, he claims to be an atheist in his academic work, but practically he's going to have to say, no, I don't want to buy into that either. I don't want to buy into the implications of a Darwinistic morality. I'm going to say that, no, we ought to protect people. Well, why should we protect people? By what moral standards should we protect people? Because Richard Dawkins knows as much as everybody else that it's wrong to allow innocent people to die. He knows that. But he can't justify that by his worldview. Thankfully, we're not suggesting that Darwinian morality should go through. But if you try and live out atheism consistently, you'd have to say, well, that's just the way things are. There is no right or wrong. Let's just let people die. There would be nothing wrong with that. They know there's something wrong with it, but it doesn't comport with their atheism. We're going to unpack more of this right after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Our website is crossexamined.org. We're back in two minutes. Friends, can you help me with something? Can you go up to iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast and give us a five-star review? Why? It will help more people see this podcast and therefore then hear it. So if you could help us out there, I'd greatly appreciate it. You know, one thing I haven't mentioned lately, and I ought to, is we've got the cross Examine Instructor Academy coming up this summer. It's still scheduled. We're not canceling it. It's in Dallas. CIA is in Dallas. I want to say it's August 6 to 8. I have to look at the calendar, but it's around there. Early August. And the reason we're doing it in Dallas, because, look. Look, no virus can survive in Dallas in August. In fact, human beings can hardly survive in Dallas in August. Okay, so that's where we're holding it. Well, we didn't know about the virus when we scheduled it, but that's where we're holding it. Myself, Greg Kokel, Jay Warner Wallace, David Wood, Richard Howe, Bobby Conway, uh, uh, Lisa Childers. Others are going to be there. Uh, Brett Kunkel are going to be there to help you become a better apologist, to help you better be able to defend your faith in a presentation format, in a QA and a format. And so if you want to be a part of CIA, we, we take only about 60 people. It's a it's a three-day intimate group where you get to learn from uh, the people that you see out there doing it, people I just mentioned. Personally, you're going to present to us, and we're going to uh, evaluate how you present. We'll, of course, present to you as well. So check out CIA. Go to crossexamine.org. Click on events. You'll see CIA there. And sign up, well, apply. You have to apply soon. It's not inexpensive, but it's well worth it. And we, in fact, we have people who have come to CIA like eight times. This is, I think, going to be our 13th event, our 13th year of doing it. So if you want to be a part of that, you better sign up or f- apply quickly because I say we're going to run out of room. Uh, all right. Now, you're probably thinking, Frankie, are you really going to suggest that science is less certain than philosophy? That science is less certain than morality? Yes. Why? Why do you say that philosophy is more certain, or at least as certain as science? Because you can't do science without philosophy. Science is built on philosophy. A building is only as strong as its foundation. And if the foundation is weak, then the building is weak. It will tumble. In fact, let's just, Think about some of the sentences or some of the claims made about science. Science will save us, people will say. Well, that actually is a philosophical statement about science. It's not science itself. You can't prove that in the laboratory. Science will save us. No, that's a philosophical statement about science. You have to use philosophy to come up with that. Whether it's true or not is another question. But it's a philosophical statement. Science is more valuable than religion. Well, that's actually a value statement about science. It's not science itself. Again, you have to use philosophy and value itself, or you have to make some sort of moral judgment in order to come to that conclusion. You're using morality. You're using philosophy in order to make statements like that. All truth comes from science. I'm sure you've heard that as well. Well, all truth comes from science is actually a self-defeating statement about science because, number one, you can't get that science from the laboratory or that statement or that conclusion from the laboratory. That's a philosophical statement. And number two, it defeats itself. It's, it's a claim about science. It's not science itself. To say that all truth comes from science is not a scientific claim. And if, it, if for it to be true... If it has to be a scientific claim, that statement isn't true then. I know it can give you intellectual constipation if you think about it. Let me say it another way. All truth comes from science is not a truth claim from science. It's a truth claim about science that comes from philosophy. So science is built on philosophy. And again, any building can only be as sure as its foundation. What is the foundation of science? I'm going to list nine philosophical assumptions that scientists make in order to do science without them. You can't do science or you can't get accurate, accurate results. Number one, truth exists and it can be known. That's a philosophical claim. It's not a claim by science, it's a claim you need to believe in order to do science, because if truth doesn't exist or you can't know truth, why are you trying to do a a scientific experiment or scientific investigation to discover the truth? It would make no sense. That's the first philosophical assumption you're making. Number two, the laws of nature are orderly and consistent. That's a philosophical assumption. It's built on observation, which uh, assumes a certain amount of philosophy in order to do. And it presupposes that there should be somebody out there who created these laws of nature and keeps them so orderly and consistent. I mean, that's where order comes from. It comes from an orderer. Where do the laws of nature come from? Scientists just grant themselves the laws of nature. I'm reminded of Paul Davies, who many years ago had had an editorial in the New York Times And he's he's an agnostic. He's not a a Christian. He's an agnostic astronomer. And uh, I think from Arizona State University, the title of the op-ed, if I remember correctly, was Taking Science on Faith. And his point was, is that scientists are just saying the laws of nature just exist. And they had no origin. They're just there. There's no cause for these laws. We're just starting with these laws. Where do those laws come from? And why are they so orderly and consistent? Every every material thing changes why do the laws of nature which govern material things why don't they change and if they do change how could we do science i mean if a certain cause and if, if a certain cause causes a particular effect today what happens if the laws of nature change are we going to be able to get that same cause and effect relationship or recognize that same cause and effect relationship tomorrow well no i guess if the laws of nature change The third assumption you're making is that all effects have causes. The law of causality. You can't prove that by science. You need that in order to do science. That's what scientists do. They're trying to discover what particular cause caused a particular effect. And that's what theologians do too, which theology traditionally has been called the queen of all sciences, because you're taking all of reality and you're trying to discover What is the cause of all of reality and every aspect, every academic discipline under this umbrella of reality and how it all fits together toward one overarching truth? All effects have causes. And as a theologian sees an effect like the universe and they reason back to a cause. If there's a creation, they reason back. That's the effect. They reason back to a cause, a creator. They see design in the universe. That's the effect. They reason back to a cause, a designer. They see a moral law or a sense of moral law written on our hearts. They reason back to a moral law giver. They're reasoning from effect to cause. That's what scientists do. Whether they're natural scientists or whether they're scientists, which means knowledge. That's what you're trying to do when you're doing science. You're trying to discover knowledge whether they're theologians, whether they're archaeologists, whether they're anthropologists or sociologists or psychologists or whoever they no matter what kind or even historians are considered scientists they're trying to discover truth they're trying to discover knowledge causes have effects and effects have causes the law of causality you can't assume that by or you can't Discover that by science. You have to assume that in order to do science. Number four, the fourth philosophical presupposition or assumption you're making when you're doing science is that causes in the past were like those in the present. This is called the principle of uniformity. And this says that if you find an effect today that had a particular cause, that the same kind of cause must be responsible for that same effect, say, a thousand years ago. So if you come across the Rosetta Stone in Egypt and you, you see there's three kinds of languages engraved into this rock, and uh, you say, well, what could have caused that? Well, today, you know that to put languages into rock, you got to have an intelligent being to do so. You got to have you know a mind to actually create, a human being to create those etchings in the rock. So we're going to say that because today it requires an intelligent being to create inscriptions in Iraq, the Rosetta Stone must have been created the same way because causes in the past were like those in the present. If we can't assume the principle of uniformity, we can't get at the past because we can't go back and, and witness the past directly. All we can do is look at the clues left over and assume that the same kind of effect had the same type of cause back then, like it does now principle of uniformity can't prove it by science. It's a philosophical presupposition. Fifth assumption you're making when you're doing science, our senses are giving us accurate information about the real world. That's called realism. Now this should not happen on atheism. Why? Because if your mind doesn't really exist. You just have a brain and your brain is controlled completely by the laws of physics. You shouldn't believe anything you think. You're just a moist robot, as as I've said a million times on this show. Yet our senses can give us accurate information about the real world and our mind can know these things. That's an assumption that scientists make. They have to make, otherwise they can't do science. They, They can't get any data for their experiments or their historical investigation without their senses. So you have to assume your senses are reliable. Number six, you have to assume that the immaterial laws of logic and mathematics apply to the material world. Well, why, why should they? Where do these immaterial laws come from? Years ago, Eugene Wigner had an article called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics. I said, why? Why can we describe external reality by mathematics? He didn't have any answer. He wasn't a theist. Well, the answer I think is, is because God set up this orderly world based on his orderly nature. And so mathematics does apply to the world, just like the laws of logic apply. That's better explained by theism than atheism. And you need those laws in order to do science. You can't prove them by science. You can't prove the laws of logic by, by putting them in a test tube or the laws of mathematics. You need those laws in order to do science. This is why, philosophy is at least as certain quite often more certain than science than science itself because in order to do science you need to use these assumptions in order to actually come out with some sort of scientific result the seventh assumption we have free will to make choices and to follow the evidence where it leads again that shouldn't happen if we're molecular machines if we're moist robots but you have to have the free will to follow the evidence where it leads. If you're just a moist robot, if you're a molecular machine, a wet computer, so to speak, how can you follow the evidence where it leads? You're just you're just molecules bumping into one another. But if you have free will to say, ah, I see where the evidence is pointing. Let me make a free will decision to say that's the cause of this effect. you got to have free will. You can't prove it by science. you got to assume it in order to do science. All right, you're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek. Much of what I'm talking about is in our book, Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case, if you want more details here. So check that book out, and I'll be back in just two minutes, and we'll continue. Don't go anywhere. friends. Frank Turek here. I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist is a listener-supported radio program and podcast. So if you like what you hear here, would you consider donating to crossexamined.org? 100% of your donations go to ministry, 0% to buildings. We're completely virtual. So if you can help us out, we greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. Today, we're talking about why science depends on philosophy, and for that reason, philosophy is at least as certain, if not more certain, than science itself. And we've talked about a number of reasons why science is built on philosophy. We've given seven so far. Here's number eight. The number eight, or the eighth assumption we make when we're doing science, is that we can make rational inferences from the scientific data to establish true premises and then draw valid conclusions. When we're doing a scientific investigation or an experiment, we're assuming that we can get good data from that and then apply that data to the real world, in other words, and make these true or valid conclusions. Why can we do that again? That's better explained by theism, an ultimate mind, than nothingness or just molecules bumping into one another. And then the ninth assumption we make when we're doing science, which can't be proven by science, but affects the outcome, is that we should report our results accurately. In other words, objective moral values and obligations exist. We ought to be honest when we're doing science. You can't prove that by science. You need to bring morality to science. You can't put morality in a test tube... You can't get morality from a test tube. You have to be moral in order to get the right results. Because if you fudge your data or you fudge the results because you want to get a certain result, you're going to get, obviously, a bad scientific conclusion. You see, science can tell you how to build a bomb, but science can't tell you whether or not you ought to use it. That's a moral question. Morality is more certain than the scientific result you're getting because you have to use morality in order to get the scientific result you're trying to get. It's at least as certain, if not more. In fact, you know with more certainty that torturing babies for fun is wrong than you do how than, than your assessment of how electrons work. You're more certain about that. In fact, J.P. Moreland made that case uh, on our show here last year when he talked about his book on scientism. He says there have been four different views of electrons in the past hundred years, you know, how they actually work, theories of electrons. He said, I can see us coming up with maybe a more precise theory of electrons 50 years from now. I can't see us changing our view, however, on the question, is it right to torture babies for fun? We're all going to still know 50 years from now that torturing babies for fun is wrong. And even if we're brainwashed to believe otherwise, it would still be wrong to torture babies for fun. But, you know, we might change our scientific assessment of electrons because science is tentative. Morality on the big issues isn't. It's not tentative to say you ought not murder people. It's not tentative to say you ought not torture babies for fun. These are not tentative. It's not tentative that you ought not rape people. We know that. And any argument for atheism will be built on weaker premises than the moral intuitions that those things are wrong. That's what Louise Anthony admitted, an atheist. She admitted in her debate with William Lane Craig. And, oh, by the way, did you see the show with William Lane Craig on Friday? The Hope One show? Dr. Craig uh, came on and... uh, I asked him a bunch of questions. He answered a bunch of questions, and you answered The audience asked him a bunch of questions as well. It's an hour-long show. It's on our YouTube channel, crossexamine.org, also our Facebook page. Share that with others. Uh, The Hope One Show, we try and bring you every day at 1130 a.m. to bring you hope during this lockdown period. Hope you can join us. Scheduled for this week, we've got people like, uh, let's see, David Wood, Jay Warner Wallace, Elisa Childers, Max McLean, others. Hope you can join us. So the point here is, is that we should report our results accurately. That's the ninth assumption we make in order to do science. You can't prove this by science. You need those things in order to do science. So scientists rely on all these truths at all stages of the scientific process before, during and after gathering data or doing an experiment. All of these philosophical assumptions are taking place. And in order to interpret the data, that takes a mind, a free will mind that can rationally follow the evidence where it leads, an honest mind that's not going to fudge the data. One study showed that at least a third of scientists had fudged data to get the results they want. A third. Now, those are just the the people that admitted it. Maybe that's higher. Now, I'm not trying to impugn all scientists. Don't get me wrong. I'm simply saying that scientists are just like everybody else. We're fallen creatures. And we might be tempted to fudge data to get the result we want, to get the grant money we want. Or to get the uh, result we want for our particular client. Or because we have an ideological bias. So philosophy is more certain than science. If it wasn't, you wouldn't be sitting home right now. Because as we learn more and more about the coronavirus, as deadly as it is, it's not deadly to everyone. A more reasonable approach, if we had the data would probably be the one that I mentioned earlier, that we would we would protect the vulnerable people, sequester them, and the people that were healthy and didn't have other pre-existing conditions could, with social distancing, go out there and resume their normal duties and not shut down the entire economy, which, by the way, kill, will kill a lot of people now that we've done that. We've been through that on this program before, but... Um, You're killing people no matter what you do. If you open up the society, you're probably going to kill people from coronavirus. If you don't open the society, you're going to kill people because you haven't opened up society. The question is, how do you minimize the death? And that's a political question. Maybe we'll talk about again at another time. But the point here is, is that you're more certain about philosophical Issues and moral issues, which is a philosophical issue, than you are scientific issues in many cases. And science can never be more certain than philosophy because it's built on philosophy. If sci- If your philosophical presuppositions or your philosophical assumptions or your philosophical conclusions are weak and they go into your scientific experiment, well, then you're not going to get the right result. So I just thought I'd point that out because we're so often told that science is the savior to everything. When in fact, science couldn't even get off the ground without philosophy, without morality. These are things you have to bring to science without logic, without math in order to do science. Now let's deal with some other questions. You guys have sent questions in and we've kind of been talking about other issues. So I apologize. I haven't gotten to some of your questions. If you have a question, you can email it to hello at crossexamine.org. Hello at crossexamine.org. Pam writes in and says, my question is if God knew that Adam and Eve were going to sin and he was going to send Jesus to die for us and save us, or the question is if, if he knew, uh, and he was going to say, uh, "It's not worded right." Sorry. Anyway, <laughs> I'm sure he did know Adam and Eve were going to eat of that tree. Why did he put us here as sinners, even at even as believers in him, when he knew we were going to hurt each other? Why, why did he do that? Why did he allow, if he knew they were going to sin? Why did he even put them in the garden? Why did he, why did he get? Why did he even give them the opportunity? Because if he didn't give us the opportunity to make a free will choice, we couldn't love. If we never have an opportunity to make a free will choice, then we can't love people either. Love requires free will. The problem is free will opens up the possibility for evil. And that's why God had to come into the universe. That's why Jesus had to come in to save us from the evil that we did. Because he's an infinitely just being. He can't allow sin to go unpunished. He's got to punish it. So, who does he punish? He doesn't punish us in eternity if we're covered with Christ's sacrifice. He punishes Christ in our place. That way, he remains just and he also justifies the ungodly, which is that's me and you. We're ungodly. So, you could ask that same question Why did God put me on the earth if he knew? I was going to sin. Why did God put you on the earth? If he knew you were going to sin, because if he wants to have love, he's got to allow free will. And he knew he could redeem it. Now, is it possible? God could create it, could have created a universe where nobody sinned? Well, that's logically possible, but it might not be actually achievable with free creatures. Because as soon as you allow freedom, by definition, you can't force free creatures to do what you want them to do. If you did, they wouldn't be free. So while this isn't the best way, or I should say it another way, why this isn't the best possible world, because, you know, one less rape, one less murder, one less coronavirus death would make it a better world. It might be the best way to get to the best possible world with free creatures. God gives us free will to love or to not love. And he redeems those who know they've fallen short And who want forgiveness. But he can't force free people to love him. The love, by definition, must be freely given. So he can't force people to love him. All he can do is offer his love and offer his sacrifice. So it's a good question, Pam. But if he didn't give Adam and Eve free will and he didn't give us free will, we wouldn't be free creatures. And this wouldn't be a moral universe. Another question from this comes from David Kushner. David says, I grew up Christian, but I never knew who Jesus was until the last few months. The reason I began to know Jesus is because I started doubting by thinking, is God actually real? I did a lot of research and I got some pretty good answers now, but I still tend to doubt God at moments. And this puts me in fear. I wish I could just know that he's there in my heart. I always say that I know God exists, but I still have doubts. Any advice would you mean would mean everything to me? Well, first of all, one of the problems here, David, and yeah, everyone struggles on occasion with this. Is the fact that your psychology will not tell you whether or not something is true, whether or not God exists or anything else is true. The evidence will. Your psychology can change. You know, you could wake up one day feeling great, everything's fine. The next day you wake up and you go, oh, gee, I doubt all this. Well, what changed? Did the evidence change? No, the evidence didn't change. You changed. You're going up, you're going down. If you saw Greg Kokel on our our Thursday, Hope One, he he, he always says this, before I have my first cup of coffee in the morning, I'm an atheist. After I have my first cup, I'm a Jehovah's Witness. By the time I have my second cup, I'm back to being a Christian. Well, notice what's changing, him or the evidence? He's changing. He's going up and down based on whether or not he's got caffeine, right? (laughs) Okay. And it's a joke, but you get the idea, right? Your psychology will not tell you whether or not Christianity is true or anything's true. The evidence will. You know, a lot of people are deathly afraid of flying, but I submit to you, evidence, uh, from from the evidence, it's the safest way to go anywhere. Thousands of flights every day. Very very rarely do you have an accident. Very rarely. You're more at risk getting into a car. Yet the same people who fear flying are the same people who drive all over the place. It's not rational. It's emotional. and. Airline travel is still the safest way to go despite the fact you might not actually feel it. Same thing is true with God. God actually exists even if psych- psychologically you doubt he exists. And how do you know he exists? We'll get into some of that right after the break. You're listening to I don't have enough faith to be an atheist with Frank Turk on the American Family Radio Network. Website again is crossexamine.org. Don't forget about CIA Cross Examine Instructor Academy. And the new Stealing from God course we're going to teach next month. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. Don't. Hi, friends. Frank Turek. You can only have two things. Either you can have hope or you can have despair. Every day during this coronavirus season at 11:30 a.m. Eastern time, 10:30 Central, we will be live online with a new live stream called Hope One. It's at crossexamined.org. Go to crossexamined.org and we're going to give you hope every weekday, Monday through Friday, 11:30 Eastern, 10:30 Central. I hope you can join us. That's right. I'll be teaching Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case online beginning in May. All the details on our website, crossexamine.org. Click on online courses. If you take the premium version, I'll be online live with you on seven occasions, uh, taking your questions via Zoom video. And we've been doing a lot of that over this lockdown month. We are running. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist and uh, fearless faith and um, Sean McDowell is teaching a course on uh, homosexuality and the Bible right now. And so we're doing a lot of Zoom sessions. We might as well make this time productive, ladies and gentlemen, while we're sitting all at home. And uh, next month, uh, we'll teach stealing from God. So if you want to be a part of that, go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses. Uh, And I'll get back to David's question here in a minute, but I thought of something else with Pam. Pam was asking the question, you know, why did God create Adam and Eve knowing they would sin and put them in the garden? Well, we could ask that same question about us. Why do we as parents have kids knowing they will sin? Because we know that despite the fact that our kids are going to do evil, they can still do good. And if God exists, he can redeem their choices as well. He can save them as well. So we realize that despite the fact that opening up the possibility for evil through free will can bring pain and suffering, there's a greater good involved here. And that is love. Anyway, back to David's question, he says, I still have doubts. We talked about the fact that Well, let me put it this way. Sometimes I have people email me and they say, Frank, I used to be a Christian or they'll see me on a college campus. You'd be a Christian, but you know, I'm an atheist now because I lost my faith. And I almost want to say to them, so because your psychology changed, are you telling me God no longer exists or Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Your psychology does not affect whether or not God exists or Jesus rose from the dead. He exists or doesn't exist regardless of what you think about it. Jesus rose from the dead or he didn't rise from the dead, regardless of what you think about it. Your psychology is not the determining factor as to whether or not these things are true. The evidence is. So you've got to look at the evidence and discover if the evidence is good. And there is evidence, as we've been through a thousand times here. In fact, when atheists say there is no evidence, I always ask them, well, why is there evidence for anything? (laughs) I mean, you're living in a world that has evidence and we can discover evidence because this world is built by a rational mind and maintained by a rational mind. If if there was no source of rationality, if there was no order to this universe, we couldn't, there would be, we wouldn't exist. There'd be no evidence for anything, much less God. And by the way, if you're, if you're feeling far from God, you know, you're, you're doubting or you're doubting because of evil or suffering or whatever. Look, we have independent reasons to believe God exists. Therefore, even if some issues related to the problem of either, whether it's suffering, whether it's dryness, not feeling God is there, whatever it is. Even if we can't answer all of those questions precisely, or we just don't have enough information because we're finite, God's infinite. That's no reason to doubt God's existence. In other words, even if some of our questions aren't answered or are inexplicable because of our limited perspective, that's no reason to doubt God's existence. What we don't know does not negate what we do know. Let me say that again. What we don't know does not negate what we do know. What do we know? We know God exists because of the cosmological argument. The universe had a beginning. Whatever created space, time, and matter can't be made of space, time, and matter. Must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent. We talked about that. Dr. Craig talked about it on the Hope One broadcast Friday. You can go there for more. We know there's got to be an incredible mind out there because of the teleological argument from the fine-tuning of the universe, including the initial conditions of the universe, the laws of nature, the constants and quantities in those laws of nature. The fact that the universe is goal-directed, that things happen in an orderly way, that an acorn always becomes an oak tree. It doesn't become an elm tree, a birch tree, or a seahorse. Why? Because it's programmed to become an oak tree. And it doesn't have a mind of its own, yet it reliably goes in the direction of becoming an oak tree. Why? Well, if it doesn't have a mind of its own, there must be an external mind directing it toward an end. This is what Aristotle called the unmoved mover. This is what Thomas Aquinas called God. And he said, this is my fifth way to argue for God. The entire universe is goal directed. It's going in a direction. It's not conscious. But if it's not conscious and it goes in a direction, there must be a conscious mind directing it. There are billions of letters of of precisely ordered information in irreducibly complex creatures. We call life. That's evidence for an intelligent being. There's transcendental arguments for God, like the laws of logic and our ability to reason and the laws of mathematics consciousness and free will are best explained by a mind. The argument from composition shows that there must be an uncomposed composer. Look, if things are composed, and they are, everything that exists that we know about here on earth is composed. It's made of parts. Well, anything that's composed is put together by a composer, but you can't go on an infinite regress of composers. You got to get back to an uncomposed composer, an uncreated being, a being that we would call the great I am, the being that just bees, the being whose essence equals his existence. He's not composed. He's simple. He has no parts. He's uncomposed. And he's put everything that is composed together. The The argument from Old Testament prophecy. And of course, the New Testament and the resurrection. These are independent arguments. That point to one ultimate cause. God, a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, moral, intelligent creator who created and sustains all things. That being actually exists based on the evidence. Again, we're reasoning from effect back to cause. And because you feel dry about it or because your psychology changed, that doesn't change any of these arguments. In fact, for atheism to be true, for materialism to be true, every single spiritual experience in the history of the world has to be false. Is that possible? I suppose it's possible. Is it reasonable? No course not every single spiritual experience in the history of the world every single miracle claim in this in the in the in the history of the world has to be mistaken has to be false that takes a lot of faith to believe that so not knowing why god does certain things does nothing to defeat the solid arguments we already have for god's existence and in fact One of the arguments we have for God's existence is evil itself, not because God is doing evil, but because he's the standard of good by which we'd even know what evil was, as we've talked about before. So if you think it's evil that God doesn't reveal himself to you more directly or more persuasively or in more ways, you're actually presupposing a standard that this God ought to do this. Well, where are you getting this ought from? Look, as I mentioned before, we know this is not the best of all possible worlds. One less rape, one less murder, one less death. But it is the best way to get to the best possible world. In fact, as Greg Kokel talked about on his, uh, in his book, The Story of Reality, and on Thursday's Hope One show, that... Actually, the problem of evil is what Christianity is all about. If there was no problem of evil, there would be no need for Jesus. There would be no need for God to come into the bloodstream of humanity and to take our punishment on himself. Because if we hadn't done evil, if there was no evil, that wouldn't be necessary. Christianity is the answer to the problem of evil. So. This is the best way to get to the best possible world. And one of the things we're trying to do, the purpose of life is to know God and to make him known. And when we say no, we don't just mean intellectually. We mean volitionally volitionally, to know him personally and to become more like him. And actually, sometimes that takes pain, as we've talked about before. You've got to go through difficulty. In order to grow and become more like Jesus, Jesus learned obedience through suffering. A perfect, a perfect man who had no sin nature learned obedience through suffering. Gee, that must mean we need a lot of suffering to learn obedience as well. In fact, as Peter Kreft has put it this way, which I think is a great quote, he said, this world is a terrible resort, but it's a great gym. This world is a terrible resort, but it's a great gym. You're working out and you're enhancing your capacity to enjoy God and one another by going through difficulty. That's what we're doing when we're going through difficulty. That's what we're doing. Those are the upsides, the positives that come out of difficulty. And without those positives, we might never discover why we're here or without those negatives, I should say pain and suffering. So some people will never come to God. will never even think about God until they're on their back. As C.S. Lewis said, sometimes you only look up when you're on your back. Of course, there are other people. It doesn't matter what God does. If things are going really well, they put God completely out of their mind. That's why I say prosperity is one of our greatest trials. Prosperity is one of our greatest trials. Because when things are going well, we tend to forget about God. This is why Jesus said it's difficult for a rich man to get into heaven. Because we tend to put all of our, all of our security and all of our worth and all of our plans into prosperity. Prosperity can be a problem. It can divert us. And so when things are going well, we forget about God. Those same people, sometimes if they they have no interest in God. As soon as things start going badly, they blame God. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> okay. Hold on. Hold on. Either God exists or he doesn't exist. If things are going to go real well and you're going to forget about him, but only complain when things go really bad, do you really believe in him? I mean, come on. Do you really think that God's job is to make us happy and well here? Is that, was that why we're here, just to be happy and to feel good all the time? As C.S. Lewis famously said, he said, you know, we, we just want God to be a benevolent, old grandfatherly type figure, a figure who just wants everyone to have a good time. If that's your idea of God, you got the wrong God. God's a father, not a grandfather. He wants he wants more for us than just to spoil us. He wants us to become like him and enjoy him forever. And sometimes you got to go through difficulty in order to do that. So if you're, you're, you're feeling a period of dryness or you're feeling that God just isn't as close to you as you want, don't doubt that he exists. There's a lot of evidence he does exist, regardless of what your psychology says. All right, friends, great being with you again. I'm Frank Turek. Hope you can watch the Hope One broadcast this week. Hope to see you again here next week. And I hope you have a wonderful week at home. Love one another this week. See ya. If you benefit from this podcast, help others find it. Just go to iTunes or any other podcast service you might be using to listen and leave us a five-star rating on the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast with Dr. Frank Turek. It will take you less than five seconds. You can also help a lot by leaving us a positive review for others to see. This podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and many other audio content delivery apps. Thank you and God bless.